Nick Ward didn't just convince strangers to hand him money on the street. He talked them into going to their bank machines if they didn't have money on them. He talked them into going back to their apartments if they didn't have their cash card with them. Some of the people he talked into giving him money two and three times. And when they left him, a lot of these people hugged him. They said, God bless you. They felt good about themselves. They'd been conned, and they never felt better. There's an artist for you. That's a gift. Well, from WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it is This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of stories on that theme. Today's program, How to Take Money from Strangers. We bring you three stories today about nerve and entrepreneurial spirit and everything that makes this country great. Plus, of course, lying and deception and everything that makes it a more complicated place to live. We have three case studies today. One on the street, one in the salons of the wealthy, one on the phone. Act one of our program, St. Nick, a con man who makes money partly by making people feel like they are good people living in a good country. Act two, what makes Grammy run? At the other end of the economic spectrum, a legitimate businessman who makes his living by selling, I have to say, a very similar picture of the world to his customers, who are the very rich. That story from Sarah Val. Act three, futures market. The true story of how writer Stephen Glass took money from strangers by selling hope and fear when he got a job as a telephone psychic. A rare look inside that very American business. Stay with us. Act one, St. Nick. But when This American Life producer Nancy Updike started working on this particular story, she was making phone calls to Philadelphia, where Nick Ward ran his con. And she would be on the phone with friends of hers in Philly, and she would mention the story, and they'd say, oh, that guy, that guy, he took money from me. This happened over and over and over. Nick Ward worked the streets so long and so effectively that everyone seemed to have been conned by him or knew somebody who had been conned by him. And a couple of days into her research, Nancy suddenly remembered that back when she lived in Philadelphia years ago, she was conned by him. Here's her story. There's an unfortunate twist to this story, which is that some of the key characters are actually dead or lost. One was a bemused judge who said on one of Nick Ward's frequent visits to his courtroom, you have a brain that's beautiful, but that brain has been turned to the con. Then there was a little old lady in New Hampshire who got dozens and dozens of phone calls from strangers in Philadelphia who were conned by Nick Ward. And then there's Nick Ward himself, who is nowhere to be found. Okay, Center City, Philadelphia's charmingly small downtown area. Picture a skyline of about four buildings, and then around those 20 square blocks or so of law offices, hotels, and those kind of little boutiques where you have to be buzzed in. This is where a lot of the city's white-collar professionals work, and it's also where Nick Ward worked. It's where he conned, and this is a partial list, two assistant district attorneys, three metal salesmen, an architect, a university professor, several doctors, a folk singer, a medical student, a geologist, the secretary of the Delaware Valley Association of Railroad Passengers, and, in another part of the city, the chief of the criminal division of the U.S. Attorney's Office, best known for dismantling the Little Nicky Scarfo mob that had run Philadelphia and southern New Jersey for years. (laughs) 
I was walking down uh, Market Street, the main street in Philadelphia, on my way to drop off some things to the Salvation Army, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> I was the perfect candidate for this. This is Bill Marsh, an art director at the Inquirer. Ward found him in the same ideal state he found dozens of others at a moment where they felt full of the spirit of giving. He caught a lawyer on her way back from a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving Day, another woman leaving church services on Christmas Eve. But Ward also had a gift for spotting the people who give all year round. Gary Glenn is an editor for the American College of Physicians. I was out at lunch, and I was walking through the underground concourse at Suburban Station. And um, my wife and I have volunteered in homeless shelters and generally give the panhandlers a lot. Gary and Bill, two men who were strangers before their respective Nick Ward experiences, will now perform a duet for you about how Nick Ward talked them into giving him a total of $135. He said he was a college kid from Boston studying fashion design, and he'd come down here for an interview at a department store. He's a fashion designer, and he was in Philadelphia to present some of his designs and photography to one of the big department stores here. A gypsy cab driver had taken his garment bag and portfolio. He didn't have his check. He didn't have an ATM card. Uh, a gypsy cab, as he put it, um, made off with all his stuff, camera equipment, photography, everything. He was left stranded here. He called the cops. He'd been to Traveler's Aid. Yeah, it was a Traveler's Aid office. He wanted directions to the Traveler's Aid office, and... Um, I don't know how to put this. He he played upon all kinds of racial guilt that one might feel. He's black and everyone he approached is white. Oh, of course that fed into it. I mean, you look at all the people that, that Nick picked, they were all white, mostly suburban, middle class, you know, the same people who make the United Way donations or give some money to the church clothing drive. Let's add an alto voice to this duet. This is Ginny Wigand, the reporter who broke the story about Nick Ward in the Philadelphia Inquirer. When people would kind of walk quickly away from him, he would call out after them, don't shun me just because I'm a black male. And of course, then people would stop in their tracks and just feel terrible. And as soon as they stopped, he had them. He would say that he, when he arrived in Philadelphia, he was lost and ended up in near the University of Pennsylvania campus and some fraternity, white fraternity brothers were nasty to him and called him racial names, which of course made everyone feel terrible. And he'd say, can you believe that in the city of brotherly love, that they would treat a black man like that and someone like me? And he was very well dressed. He had, he was clean shaven. He had a nice wool sweater, leather jacket on. He would offer to give people his watch, you know, as, as proof that he was the real thing. Um, so he, and no one ever took it, so he could offer it every time. And say well, I guess people felt, it made them feel terrible to, right. I'm having these doubts about him, and look, as, as evidence of his goodwill and good faith, he's offering me this nice watch. And so no, no one ever took it. Every single suggestion that I made to him to get help was... Um, he said he'd already tried, or, you know, they're all racist, it, you know, he... I don't, I didn't want to be one of those people. Um, certainly didn't want to be thought of as racist, because I'm not. And that's what you bought for $35. Uh, 
you get really you, good about myself. You, you, you get to be the non-racist. Yeah, I suppose. What he was asking for was the um, price of a train ticket back to Boston. Um, and I doubt I would have financed that even if I'd had the money. I gave him everything I had, which was $35. And I said, listen, I can give you 20 bucks, but and he said, listen, if I have to tell my story to like five more people to get the money I need, I'll be here all day. I don't want to be in Philadelphia at night with no place to go. And then, all right, that sounds logical. So I went to an ATM machine, took out a hundred and gave it to him. And I honestly believed, not entirely, I didn't, I didn't think that there was a possibility that this was insincere, but I honestly expected to get a check and a call from him. You know, of course, that Nick did not call. But perhaps you're not fully understanding how thoroughly Nick made his marks believe in him. Let me tell you this story. Several months after Bill was conned, he ran into Nick while Nick was in mid-scam with someone else. Um, I made a fool of myself. I came off looking like the lunatic. Um, I was walking home from work late one night, and I saw Nick um, with a young woman deep in conversation. Um, without really thinking, I uh, went up to him with a very badly composed and hysterical... <laughs> outburst, uh, something like, do you know who this guy is? Or, No, and as a matter of fact, my, the first words out of my mouth were, do not give this man any money. Do you know who he is? This is Nick Jerome Ward. He's a scam artist. You don't want to give him any money. I'm telling you, he, whatever he's telling you is not true. And I went on like that for a couple of minutes. She seemed rather stunned. And uh, he st stood there very calmly and I would say professionally and said to her, I, I don't know what he's talking about. He's not telling the truth. I don't know this guy. And uh, to my surprise and dismay, she seemed to believe him more than she believed me. I was, <laughs> I was the nut bar in that. Uh... Here's an interesting question. Is what Nick was doing illegal? Lying is not against the law. Telling someone you want money for a train ticket and then buying yourself dinner is also not against the law. Nick's problem was he told people he was going to pay them back, and he just made that promise to too many people. This is how Matthew Perks, the assistant district attorney who supervised Nick's prosecution, saw it. If the cases were each looked at individually, it could pro he could probably mount a defense to maybe one or a few that we were, would be unable to prove that he did not intend to pay the money back. Because that was the only way that it was illegal, is if he said, I will pay you back. That's correct. We would have to create an inference in the mind of whoever was deciding as a judge at that point that he... That he beyond a reasonable doubt, didn't intend to pay the money back. For someone whose con was so smooth and so well thought out, Nick made one big mistake, a really strange mistake, actually. The phone number he gave Bill was the same one he gave Gary, 
which was also the same one he gave everyone. And it turned out to be the actual unlisted phone number of this woman who was a retired editor of an outdoor magazine living in New Hampshire, originally from Finland, who was homesick with cancer and started getting all these weird calls from people in Philadelphia. And after a while, she just started taking down their names and phone numbers and putting them in touch with each other until finally she had this database of about 150 people. So Ginny started to write a story about Nick for the Inquirer, and she called this woman up and got all these names, which made it this huge story. It came out in the Sunday paper, got the front page, top of the fold, and everything was put in motion. The police, who had actually known about Nick but who'd been busy with more serious crimes, got embarrassed and arrested him. Nick ended up in court and eventually went to prison. But what's interesting is that along the way, there was all this outrage from the people he'd conned. Truly, outrage. The public defender who worked Nick's case said to me, Look, I've been a public defender for 20 years. I have worked with rape victims, victims of terrible, violent crimes, and I have never seen the kind of vitriol from any of those victims that I saw from Nick Ward's victims. Gary said he was shocked by the mood in the courtroom when he was there. All these well-dressed, well-spoken, sort of do-gooder yuppies turned into this jeering mob. When Nick was brought in, a lot of people started taunting him, saying, hey, Nick, what do you got to say for yourself now? Oh, now he's all quiet, doesn't have anything to say. And I was looking around at the people who had been scammed by him, and I don't think there was anybody there who couldn't have done without the amount of money that they gave him. And there were people who were saying, yeah, I gave him 25 bucks, and they were you know, mad as if they'd given him their daughter or something. It was just, it was really unbalanced. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not defending Nick at all, but just the vindictiveness of the people in the court that day, I thought was way out of proportion. Why were people so mad? Maybe it was because Nick didn't just talk them out of some cash. He made his marks identify with him. He convinced them that he was a member of their club, the club of people who go to college and have job interviews and careers, and who every once in a while just have some random bad luck. People looked at him and thought, this could be my kid, or even, this could be me. Here's Gary. I think every other panhandler you see on the street, you know, oh God, they're a junkie, they're an alcoholic, or whatever. And you kind of give money to them out of a sense of pity almost condescension. Yeah, brother, here's, here's a quarter. But Nick was hitting you as an equal or as someone who was trying to work his way up to be your equal. And it's like, yeah, gotta give the guy a chance. Gotta give the guy a chance. How do you get money from a stranger? You become a salesman. First you flatter, then you sell. Nick's victims liked the image of themselves. They liked the image of America that Nick was offering them. Where of course they would help a young black man who approached them on the street and said he was in trouble. And when the truth of the con came out, when Nick took that image away from them, they were furious. There is a way in which you could think of Nick Ward as an agent or even an angel. He may not know it, and he may not be angelic, but he was something that suddenly entered our lives and we had a chance to take a test. 
do the right thing or not do the right thing. Good Samaritan. And I think that at the point at which people forked over the money, they were doing the right thing. Their attitude after that showed that they failed the test. The test, Gary says, was to figure out which kind of person you want to be. The kind who would give money to a stranger who claims to be in need, or the kind who turns their back on that stranger because they don't want to be conned. Gary says he's not sorry he gave Nick the money, even today. He says at the end of the day, if he has to choose, he'd rather be a sucker than a cynic. There's a passage in Matthew where Jesus tells his followers, if someone comes before you hungry and you give him meat, or thirsty and you give him drink, or naked and you clothe him, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. Stop it right now. This guy is not a seducer and he is not Jesus Christ. I mean, you've got to be kidding. This is Matthew Perks again, the assistant DA who supervised Nick's prosecution. And he was, as you can tell, a little alarmed at the direction of some of my questions. He turned to me when I quoted this Bible verse to him and said, you're not going to turn this guy into some kind of folk hero, are you? I'm telling you, I mean, he's a knucklehead. He says his favorite part of the Nick Ward story is the ending, because that's where he got to con Nick. It's towards the end of this block. Is where I saw him. Describe where we are. Yeah, it's a little bit. This is Locust Street, about two blocks from Rittenhouse Square. Beautiful church on the other side of the street. There's brownstone offices and upscale stores and restaurants. Matthew took me out for a walk along the route of his encounter with Nick, an encounter that eventually led to Nick being sent to prison for 19 months and then banished from Philadelphia. Nick approached him on New Year's Eve a little before midnight. Matthew was on his way home, and Nick came up to him and started spinning his story, complete with heart-wrenching details. He showed me a little cut above his eye and told me that he'd been robbed and, his, and everything was taken from him and he'd been injured and he hated Philadelphia and he had to get back to Massachusetts. So I thought I would take a little time and do the people of Philadelphia a favor. And so what happened next? We walked... He asked me for $60 to get home. I told him I didn't have enough money on me, so I told him we could walk to an automatic teller machine. What, what machine did you go to? I'll show, I'll show you. We can walk. It's on the way back. We turned up 17th Street, exactly where Nick and Matthew had walked together, each secretly plotting to con the other. And I asked Matthew to remember exactly what he had been thinking while it was happening. I'm thinking, I can't believe how lucky I am. Are you, are you trying to um, sort of play the part of the rube? Absolutely, or, absolutely. And how were you doing that? I knew exactly what, I knew exactly what he was looking for. I acted like I felt bad about what happened to him and I was going to try and help him out. You're grinning as you're telling this. You're enjoying remembering this. <laughs> Matthew's pleasure at that moment was so palpable. He was so inside this memory of having Nick completely in his power. He got to experience what Nick must have experienced every day, the joy of a perfect deception, of knowing exactly how to play someone to get what you want, that sense of power that comes from knowing someone better than they can imagine. So this is it, the scene of the crime. This is the Mac machine. That's right. It's a bank Nick, lobby, it's actually. It's a bank lobby with Mac machines in it. Right. See, we went in there, I withdrew the money and gave it to him, and I made him write down his name and address, which I knew to be fictitious, and I gave him my correct name and address because I wanted that evidence to get confiscated from him. 
to show the elements of theft by deception, to show that he promised to pay me back and had no intention of doing it. And as, as, uh, as you guys were exchanging addresses like this, what were you saying to him? I was egging him on. I told him that I really shouldn't be doing it because I'd have to explain it to my wife, so I had to be absolutely sure he was going to pay me back. And of course, I wasn't married at the time. So you, you <laughs> to catch Nick Ward, you invented a spouse. That's correct. <laughs> Matthew and I started walking away from the ATM machine. And about a block away, he said this. I still have the 320s I gave him. What did you just say? You still have the money he took from you? <laughs> yeah. What, yeah. you have it saved? Yeah. Where? Well, just, you know, sitting in my apartment. Do you have them in a special place? <laughs> yeah. Like what, in a box? Uh, that's or? off the record. That's too weird. It's not weird at all. It's the best part. <laughs> this is an assistant DA. He has had so many cases much more important than Nick Ward. So why on earth does he have 320s sitting on a shelf in his apartment in a paperclip? I'll tell you why. Because it's thrilling to take money from strangers. And that is what Nick Ward gave Matthew the chance to do. Matthew took $60 from Nick Ward. It was his own $60. But he took it. And he enjoyed it. And he's keeping it. No, wait, where are those 20s? Just on a shelf in my apartment. And do you, where you can see them? <laughs> well, I know they're there. They're not framed or anything. No, that's too weird. You, you, ju- you just have kept them. Yeah. Nancy Updike, here in Chicago. Calling on her phone I've got no time to be alone Summer coming at me all the time You better think I lose my mind Cause I'm stranded on my own Stranded far from home Alright I'm riding on a midnight train But everybody just me the same we're coming up, Sarah Val with a legitimate businessman who takes large sums of money from people. And they love him for it. And writer Stephen Glass takes large amounts of money from poor people as a telephone psychic. That's in a minute. From Public Radio International, when our program continues.
This American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, invite a variety of different writers and performers and reporters to take a whack at that theme. Today's program, Taking Money from Strangers. Michael Schumann is an attorney in New York, and part of his practice is defending people who are accused of fraud. And he says that fraud cases are interesting to him because it shows a side of human behavior that is just interesting. It's just inherently interesting. It's people betting on a promise in these cases, people betting on a dream. Americans like to, uh, to play the long shot. So when a, when a salesman comes around and says, um, uh, this piece of land is going to be worth uh, triple its value in three or four years, I think people know that, uh, that, that there's a big risk involved in that. And the chances are it doesn't, uh, it's not necessarily going to work out that way. But they want to take the chance. All right, you can tell which side of these cases he's on, but he has a point. This is the plot of a thousand Hollywood films. This is the story that runs our country. This is the nobody who sets off after the least likely thing in the world and gets it. That is this story. And it is a deep part of our culture. Well, Sarah Val has this story about a businessman who is very successful, getting people to dream and taking away money from strangers. I once had a job as the manager of a San Francisco gallery owned by an infamous New York antiquarian print and map dealer named Graham Raider. I hung gigantic Audubon pelicans and delicate little 18th century prints of lilies and roses on the wall, wrote gushy letters to collectors about 400-year-old maps of North America, and helped the sales staff try and push chromolithographs of the Grand Canyon onto unsuspecting housewives. It was one of those, boy, do I need a job kind of jobs. Grandma Raider was the kind of fascinating boss whom employees gossip about with a mix of adulation and dread. One of those go, go, go guys whose ambition you could admire while at the same time hoping you weren't the one who answered the phone when he called. Grandma Raider. The Grandma Raider. You almost wanted to say his full name every time to make it sound even more like the Terminator. My favorite story about the Grammar Raider, one printed in the New Yorker, so presumably it may even be true, says that Graham once desired a map owned by a friend. Graham begged the guy for it, told the guy that he needed the map, that he loved this map so much he wanted to hang it over his bed, that it would be the first thing he saw when he got up in the morning and the last thing he saw when he went to sleep at night that he wanted to conceive his children under it. At least that's the version of the story his employees tell each other. The friend was so touched he sold it to the grammar raider, who promptly called the friend the very next day bragging that he'd sold it, and for a tidy profit at that. Map dealers just aren't like that. As a group, they tend to be polite, bookish and don't inspire comparisons to Arnold Schwarzenegger or any other mythic pop figure. Graham is the map dealer's Michael Milken, their Elvis Presley. In financial terms, he put antiquarian maps on the map, and he popularized them like no one ever had, through sheer charisma. The antiquarian map market before Graham Raider was a, was a fairly sophisticated market. The people that collected had... Um, in-depth knowledge and understanding 
I guess the effect that I had is I brought map collecting to a lot more people who perhaps in the beginning were not as sophisticated. And <clears throat> the, the prices have gone up, and I get blamed a lot. What Graham isn't telling you is that he functions as the messiah of the map biz, or its antichrist, depending on your point of view. The entire industry can be divided. B.A., before a raider, when many historical maps sold for a few hundred dollars, and A.A., after a raider, when the same maps began commanding tens of thousands of dollars. His beginnings in the early 1970s sound so American, so go west, young man. He was dealing maps out of his dorm room at Yale. And then there's the story about how his mother ruined baby's first big sale. What happened was I'd been... Uh... I'd been working the whole summer buying maps of Penobscot Bay for Thomas Watson, who was then the chairman and chief operating officer of IBM. And he had never met me. I had met him through by phone, and I went ahead and found all these fabulous maps that showed Penobscot Bay. So at the end of the summer, I'd amassed this really incredible collection. I was living with my parents at the time. I was 20 three years old. And when Mr. Watson called, my mother not knowing who he was or why he was calling, my mother said, I'm sorry, you'll have to use the children's phone. <laughs> Mr. Watson hung up and didn't talk to me again for two years. In the years since, Graham Arader has acquired not just one, but many, many of his own telephone lines at the galleries he owns across the country. He's a successful salesman, the most successful salesman in his market for two reasons, kindness and optimism. Let's start with kindness. In some ways, the getting money ways, Graham Arader is one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Now, some people, people who actually know him, are going to laugh at that. Graham doesn't have a nice guy rep with his competitors, this is the man who, at auction, has successfully intimidated the unthinkably wealthy Getty Museum into backing down on bids. That's scary. I mean, the Grammarator's rich, but he's not that rich. Granted, he's only nice to you if he wants something out of you, but Grammarator wants something from a lot of people all the time. His secret for getting money from strangers boils down to this. Strangers don't give you money. Friends do. Relationships, he used to tell us in sales seminars. Selling comes from relationships. He bought the most perfect Bodmer dog dancer with perfect original color and full margins. This is Graham in a cab on the way to Sotheby's with one of his best clients, a guy who looks to be, oh, about 50 years old. You've got a daughter, right? A two. You've got two daughters? Yeah. What is it? You've got two sons? I've got, yeah, I've got three sons. I've got a Slow 28, down. 23. Yeah, I've got, I've got 28. Uh, he's up in Columbia. He's, he's finished. How old are you? God, you look like you're 35, goddammit. How old are you? 48. You've had, you have a son that's how old? 28. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Graham carries around a small but well-used toolbox of superlatives, which he hammers into everything. Words like fabulous and greatest and finest and his favorite best. Jeez, it's a great dream. 
I spent a day following Graham around, and a full two hours of it involved standing around the Madison Avenue house he's renovating, listening to rave reviews. And he is one of the great, great furniture men of all time, the great finishers. This was all white a month ago, and Roger's men took all the paint off, and now this genius named Laszlo Sally has made this magnificent staircase for me. I am... Why do I feel like you're selling me a banister? Uh, well, is it beautiful? <laughs> it is. Is it? Yeah. I mean, would you like to slide down it? Yeah. How about it, Sarah? How about a little slide? I think he formed the hyperbole habit by saying things like, John James Audubon is simply the finest bird painter who ever lived. Or maybe he always talked like that. Somehow, I can picture a five-year-old Graham telling his mother, Mom, these are absolutely the greatest oatmeal scotchies ever baked in North America. Which brings me to Graham Arrater's optimism. The man is perhaps the most talented looker on the bright side I have ever met. Let's start with his inventory. The thing I haven't mentioned is that the antiquarian map market is really a, shall we say, evolution of the antiquarian book market. This is because Graham gets his maps by going to book auctions and buying atlases that are hundreds of years old and then ripping them apart. He sells them as single images in elaborate frames. Librarians, of course, hate his guts. But he sees this action not just as a no-brainer business-wise, buy in bulk, sell in pieces, but as a democratizing practice. Only a few people can afford to own a great French atlas, while many more can afford one oddball chart of Antarctica yanked out of it. I can see Graham's point on this. These things, however old, were mass-produced. Though, of course, there's something unsettling about ripping up a 400-year-old anything. To me, the atlas versus map debate isn't nearly as unsettling as the story these maps tell. Graham Arrater sells history. He's a passionate historian, and whatever the librarians think of him, he knows as much about the history of cartography as any academic on the planet. It's what he does with all the info in his head that's always astonished me. Graham's inventory includes the 16th through 19th centuries. Think about those dates. Think about the story being told in European and American maps of that era. Dutch maps of South Africa. Spanish maps of California. It's not just one story, but two. A great adventure of nation-building and the promise of a new world, but also, quite frankly, one of theft and warfare and genocide. I don't think I need to tell you which of those narratives Graham Arrater spins before his clients. Watching him sell something is exciting. It's fun. It is patriotically inspiring. He was showing me a map of America, saying, This map tells the story of Manifest Destiny. And I'm thinking, Yeah, Manifest Destiny! Wow, what a country! God bless America! And then I'm like, Oh yeah, Manifest Destiny. Or he was showing a client a 16th century book, an actual whole book this time with the cover and everything filled with beautiful engravings depicting the natives of the colonies. 
So this is the beginning. This was this 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 book was actually this volume mm -hmm. was was from a, the voyage that John White took oh, in 1585. In 1585, and um, <clears throat> it was published in Frankfurt in 1590. And it really is the first image that Europeans had of the Cherokees, you know, Creeks, Seminoles, Choctaws. Lovely book. I'm thinking, that is cool. Wow, first image of the Cherokees. Beautiful. But the other voice in my head keeps saying, Trail of Tears, Trail of Tears, Trail of Tears. Jacques Lemoyne escaped. That's how they had smoked alligator and lizard and deer. And here's how they caught the deer. Look at that. That's cool. There's something so aesthetically pleasing about trading one engraving, an old map, for another, American money. What could be more perfect than someone paying for that book with all the Cherokees with a big fat roll of $20 bills, exchanging the graven images of Andrew Jackson, Mr. Trail of Tears himself, for the story of the tribe he sought to destroy? Raider, I was never good at selling. I'd be showing a client an early map of South Carolina and he'd be looking for his hometown or talking about color and I'd be saying out loud, mmm, delightful, but I'd be thinking slave state. Graham Raider's America is a prettier picture than mine. It's an easier picture to sell and he believes in it. That is why he is the best, the finest, the most fabulous, successful antiquarian map dealer in the history of the world. Sarah Fowles, the author of the book, Radio On. Thinking of a master plan. Cause ain't nothing but sweat inside my hand So I dig into my pocket, all my money spent So I dig deep up, still coming up with lint So I start my mission, leave my residence Thinking how could I get some dead presidents I need money, I used to be a stick-up kid So I think of all the devious things I did I used to roll up, this is a hole-up Ain't nothing funny, stop smiling Listen Yeah, listen Our program was produced today by Nancy Updike and myself with Elise Spiegel and Julie Snyder, senior editor Paul Tuff, contributing editors Jack Hitt, Margie Rockin, and consigliere Sarah Val, production help from Alex Bloomberg and Rachel Howard. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who reminds you... What you do for the least of these, you do for me. That's right. I'm Ira Glass. I'm back next week with more stories of This American Life. Stop it right now. This guy is not Jesus Christ. Public Radio International.